Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Today's podcast is the first of a two-part series on brain death. We are joined by Matthew Hanley, author of the book, Determining Death by Neurological Criteria, Current Practice and Ethics, which was recently published by the NCBC. The book is available through our online store at ncbcenter.org store. Our interview today focuses on ethical and other challenges concerning the use of neurological criteria to determine when a person has died. We will discuss the criteria itself, identify inconsistencies in its application, and also explore the practice of donation after circulatory determination of death, or DCDD. Matthew Hanley, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's nice to be with you. Great to be with you, too. So I asked this question of every new guest on our podcast. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, and what brought you to study bioethics. Well, my background is in public health, mainly. I received a master's degree in public health from Emory University in Atlanta around the year 2000, and that focused on international health, which led me to work on um, various international health issues, most notably with um, Catholic Relief Services. I worked as an AIDS advisor for a number of years, mainly focusing on Africa, Mm -hmm. and that uh, led from my international public health experience kind of led into my experience in bioethics uh, with respect to the ethical uh, ethical issues regarding HIV transmission and its prevention. And ultimately, I wrote a book about that issue, which was published by the National Catholic Bioethics Center. It's mm-hmm. called Affirming Love, Avoiding AIDS. And it looked at um, the epidemiology of uh, what approaches to AIDS prevention were successful and what uh, what were less successful. And it also looked at the underlying philosophical implications of uh, or underpinnings of the harm reduction technical strategies that are employed to try to reduce transmission versus the focus on the actual behaviors that result in um, transmission of the virus. So that's what got me into bioethics and my introduction to the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And from there, a couple of years after that book, Dr. John Haas asked me to come on as a senior fellow with the National Catholic Bioethics Center to look at some end-of-life issues. And that ultimately led to the publication of this recent new book on brain death or death as determined by the uh, neurological criteria. Very good. And just uh, for our listeners, your Affirming Love and Avoiding avoiding AIDS book is actually available through the NCBC store as well. So people can can still access that. So again, today we're discussing the book, as as you just mentioned, again, um, Determining Death by Neurological Criteria, Current Practice and Ethics, uh, which again, we recently published. Matt, why did you write the book? Well, I guess this topic is really not that well understood by the public, and it's not even that well understood by many healthcare professionals, number one. And since I had been doing research on this particular topic, we felt it would be good to bring that to, to the public. Um, it's not the most pleasant of topics, brain death, you're dealing with, you know, crises and things of that nature. But I did find it to be 
quite a bit more interesting and fascinating, both from a scientific point of view, a medical point of view, and also from a philosophical point of view, much more fascinating than I had supposed when I was first asked to look into this topic. So, and then you also mentioned uh, brain death or death by neurological criteria. There, you also mentioned another means of uh, determining death, the circular cr criteria. And uh, that's what I wanted to shed some light on that particular topic, which may be even less well-known than, you know, uh, brain death. So that's also another reason why I wanted to publish the book. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to our discussion of the donation after circulatory determination of death. Sure. Because when I was working for a, a healthcare system a few years ago, the policies about that were just uh, coming to the fore. And uh -huh. in fact, the, the last year that I was there, they had their first DCDD uh, transplant. And okay. some inter interesting discussions with not only people in the hospitals, but also the, uh, the, uh, the, the transplant team um, mm -hmm. in terms of, and it's, yeah, it's just, it really is a fascinating discussion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's, let's kind of go back to the beginning again and get a couple of clarification questions off the table here. So sure. what is death from a theological perspective? Well, that is actually a quite a good place to start because, <laughs> I mean, death seems so obvious, so straightforward. Death is death, and everyone can recognize that. And that's certainly the case oftentimes. But uh, when you're in a, you know, an ICU type, you know, uh, setting, it gets a little more complicated. And so, one, what do we mean when we talk about death? From a theological point of view, in our Christian tradition, our Catholic Christian tradition, we talk about we, we conceive of death as the separation of the body from the soul, which is also um, somewhat parallel to the ancient philosophical way of looking at uh, death, the form and matter. Once those two are separated, that's when death results. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it theologically, uh, that certainly makes sense, but that's hard to measure from a scientific point of view. I mean, there's no scientific measurement or lab test that can detect when the soul has departed from right. the body. There's no empirical test for that. So we, the, the, the challenge is to then uh, in, uh, try to interpret when a theological view of death aligns with a medical understanding of death. All right, so and, that leads us into the next question is what's okay. a medical understanding of death? Yeah, in fact, they are all sometimes tinkering with that definition over, over time. In recent decades, they've been trying to specify what, what exactly they mean when they talk about death. But typically, they use uh, terminology such as an irreversible cessation of the functioning of the entire human organism or the the organism as a whole. So right. in essence, the, the human organism must irreversibly cease to function as a whole right. on its own power. And so those two definitions of death, while uh, looking at the issue from a different vantage point, they can be reconciled. Okay. How can they be reconciled? Well, one, looking at the uh, what the uh, evidence, medical evidence uh, suggests, as well as applying what we know from a theological and philosophical uh, framework. All right. Maybe we'll talk about some of those things as we sure, move forward. Sure, sure. Yeah, more detail. Okay. Yes. So, all right. So, let's get a little technical here. So, okay. can you tell us what is or what are, maybe what are the neurological criteria for determining death? Well, as you mentioned in the, in the introduction, the neurological criteria is one means of determining death. And there's other means of determining death, such as based on the heart or circulatory function. 
the neurological criteria refers to brain death, and many people probably haven't heard the term neurological criteria, but they have heard of brain death, even though they don't know exactly what brain death is. Uh, but to answer your question, the neurological criteria or brain death refers to the, you know, total destruction of the entire brain. So, and it refers to not only the death of the brain as an organism, but the death of the entire human being. So the death of the individual is, is what we mean by brain death. Um, and brain death is essentially has a several requirements. One, you must have a coma of known origin. Number two, you uh, must have apnea or the inability to breathe, total inability to breathe on one's own. And three, total unresponsiveness or brainstem uh, unresponsiveness. So those are the three fundamental um, uh, hallmarks of, of brain death. If any one of them are absent, the person is not brain dead. And there are certain medical tests that physicians perform to determine whether a person a person has there is irreversible cessation of all these functions. Of course, if a person goes into the you know to the ICU with a serious brain injury, not everyone's evaluated for for brain death. But of those who are look like they could be candidates for brain death, they first of all have to go through a preliminary examination um, to rule out. anything that might uh, confound the diagnosis. And then once they proceed uh, to the next stage, they would do a clinical examination, um, which principally tests the uh, functioning of the brain stem. So it's automatic reflexes that, uh, that a person with a functioning brain stem would exhibit. And as well as they'll, they'll test for, for apnea, which is also mediated by the, the brain stem. Mm-hmm. So, they, it's a very thorough process. Um, it can be complicated, but it is a reliable, a thorough. It is a reliable diagnosis when it's done uh, rigorously and thoroughly. Yeah, and I just want to uh, clarify a term, uh, if we could. So we, sometimes we'll hear neurological criteria. We'll hear whole brain death. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. is, is that the, is, Are we talking about the same thing there? I would say yeah, pretty much the same thing. Whole. I mean, there's there's. Some people, whole brain death is by far the most widely accepted view of brain death. There's only really one other accepted view, and that's brain stem death, which the UK uses. And essentially, the clinical examinations measures the same thing, the viability of the, of the brain stem. There are other theories or, what do you say, proposals that have been floated over the years. For example, a higher brain death when, which refers to not the brain stem, but the the higher portions of the brain, which are responsible for you know um, language, memory, uh, cognition, things of that nature. So some people will say, well, if a person's lost their quote higher brain functions, but they're still breathing on their own, for example, or their brain stem is otherwise functioning. Um, some people will claim, well, because they've lost their personhood, because they've lost their inability to, you know. Uh, manifest an irrational uh, soul that they um, they are no longer alive. Right, and Terry Schiavo was a great example of that. I mean, he was a person right. who she her she had lost apparently she had lost her higher order brain functions, but her brain stem was still functioning as far as I as far as I know perfectly normally. Yeah, um, but but just to clarify, so whole brain death is all of the brain, higher order functions plus brain stem. Correct. 
Okay. So Matt, how does the whole brain death, this understanding of what we're talking about here, how does whole brain death contrast with other forms of brain injury, such as a coma or what maybe used to be called PVS, a persistent vegetative state. Now people are referring to it as a state of minimal consciousness, but how is brain death different from those diagnoses? Right. I, yes, that's actually a good follow-up on what you were just mentioning. We were talking about um, Terry Schiavo. I, I believe she was in a persistent vegetative state. Yes. Uh, which her, her brain stem was intact. I believe she was breathing on her own, but she had yeah, lost sure. a lot of the higher brain functioning. And some people were out there claiming, oh, well, she's, she's dead already, or, or because she's in this state, you know, we should take her off um, the ventilator, things of that nature. So, or the feeding tube. She was, a, she was the feeding tube. Feeding tube. Thank you for, thank you for yep. clarifying that. So the, the distinction that needs to be made is brain death refers to the, to the total destruction of the entire brain. So both the higher brain and the brain stem need to be mm-hmm. destroyed because once they're destroyed, they cannot, there's nothing that can be done to, to bring them back. There's no medical treatment for that. Whereas there are all sorts of gradations of severe brain injury. Someone can have, you know, a, you mentioned the persistent vegetative state. Some people now call that the unresponsive wakefulness uh, syndrome mm-hmm. or the minimally conscious state. So it's actually quite fascinating, Joe, that recent neurological studies have determined that people in that condition, who's, again, whose brainstem is intact, but who have a very compromised higher brain function, they, based on certain studies that have been done, they are able to exhibit uh, higher capacities than we had previously supposed. For instance, even the ability to you know, respond to audible commands or even possibly communicate in certain different ways. Uh, so I've read very, about that. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's just truly remarkable. Um, so it's obvious from these, from all of these, from all of these, not all these studies, but also the fact that their brainstem is functioning, that these people are clearly alive, severely compromised, but they're clearly alive. And there's various gradations of injury, but brain death refers to the, you know, absolute uh, irreversible uh, loss of the entire functioning of the, of the brain. Okay. So where does the Catholic Church stand on the neurological criteria or, or whole brain death? Is d- Does it hold that this is a valid standard for determining when a person has died? Um, yes, actually, it does hold that this is a valid means of determining death. And the fact the Church has looked at this for quite a number of decades, actually, and um, their reasoning is, is obviously, um, well, the reasoning is quite fascinating, actually. They say, well, how are we going to approach this issue because, as most of our listeners probably know, brain death was not even a possibility several, well, at least many, many decades ago before the advent of the ventilator and the intensive care unit. This it would be impossible to maintain somebody with a severe brain injury or brain death. But now, with the advent of the ventilator, people who had sustained this, you know, catastrophic brain injury could be maintained. And it, the challenge was to determine. Well, are they alive or are they dead? Right. And uh, the church did look into it, and, and they uh, said, well, well, what are some guiding principles for us? Number one, they say, well, we don't, the church doesn't make technical medical decisions. We listen to what the medical authorities themselves are saying. And then number two, uh, we evaluate what they're saying in light of the, the Christian anthropology or the Christian view of the unity of the person, that is the composition of the body and soul, is what they're saying about 
the person's status, alive or dead, is that consistent with a Christian anthropology? And consistently over the decades, the church has looked into this issue and said, this is a valid means of determining death because it does not seem to contradict the Christian anthropology. So I, I just I, on a personal note, are, are you, do you hold the whole brain death standard or, or the use of neurological criteria to determine brain death? Is that, is that a, the focus of, or is that one of the theses of your book, I should say? Uh, in a certain sense, yes. The focus of a book wasn't so much personal, but since you asked, I would say yes. I would say that the whole brain death criteria is valid. And number two, even beyond that, it's not only valid, but it is the only sure means of determining death. In fact, I would say that I would hold, like many others, a quote, neurocentric view of death. That is, Mm -hmm. death requires the destruction of the brain. So without the destruction of the brain, I'm sure we'll be getting into this uh, later on in the interview, we cannot be as certain that death has occurred. Whereas if we are certain that the entire brain has been destroyed, then we can be confident that death has indeed occurred. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because our, uh, our the podcast that we have following up this one is with uh, Dr. Melissa Michella from the Catholic yes. University of America. Yes. And her work, she speaks exactly about what you you were just mentioning. Um, so so I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll pick yeah, up with some I of these. I cited her and topics. several other scholars in my book. Yep. I was really grateful for their contributions. Yep. Yep, I noticed that. So that that'll be a nice uh, companion podcast. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let's get into some of the fun stuff here because this, okay. this is when um, I, I I was as I told you off air before we started the podcast. I was I was reading the book um, about a week or two ago. I picked it up and started reading it and started getting into some of these stories, and I was just absolutely fascinated. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Um, so I'll talk about a couple of these things. So in chapter three of the book, you talk about challenges concerning practitioner adherence to the neurological criteria, as well as, quote, inconsistency and variability, unquote, in terms of the, the guidelines themselves. So can you explain this? What, is, what, is the, what are these adherence and inconsistency and variability issues? Yeah, well, that also a good, good question. That's an important question because as we were just talking about the validity of brain death, that's one thing, and we can, we're arguing that it is valid. But just because it's valid doesn't mean that the practitioners are always going to do it correctly, which is, <laughs> I mean, they make diagnostic errors or errors of treatment or, or what have you. But when, they di- when the diagnosis is death and you make an error, that's a rather a weighty uh, error. That's so, not good. Yeah, that's not very good. <laughs> so it, it's, it's actually quite critical to understand, you know, how, how well are we collectively, how well are practitioners applying the neurological criteria. And one of the things to note from the outset is that there is no uniform standard that is followed everywhere in the United States and at all the hospitals, for example, at all the institutions. The law of the land gives a little bit of flexibility for institutions to develop their own protocols for um, determining brain death. And so there can be differences from hospital to hospital, but how they'll go about assessing whether a person is brain dead or a person is severely injured. So, so it's, it's critical to understand what, uh, how well we're doing this and how much variability there is. And I guess the upshot would be that 
there still does remain some areas of variability between institutions in terms of their protocols for determining brain death. And that's a, that's a concern. There has been um, improvements over the years. Um, most recently, uh, the American Academy of Neurology updated their, their guidelines. I think that was in 2010. Uh, I believe had, it was. Yeah, I think they had their earlier guidelines were like 1995, and then they updated in the 2010. And since then, there have been signs that um, you know institutions are uh, complying or, or conforming more more or less with the guidelines in certain key areas, which is encouraging. However, there are still in broad areas of the protocol uh, areas of divergence that that do remain. So the practitioners who are, you know, the leaders in this field anyway, are still concerned about variability and they're, are, they're looking for ways to um, decrease that vulnerability and achieve greater uh, standardization. Yeah. And the book gives uh, multiple examples of how, you know, there's inconsistency and variability in, in different ways that practitioners adhere. But the question that goes along with that is then do these adherence and inconsistency and variability challenges undermine the neurological criteria as a standard for determining death? Because some people would argue that, I think. Yeah, I would say that they do not undermine the neurological criteria themselves because we have to evaluate our, from an objective point of view, are the neurological criteria valid? And we already discussed uh, at least our view that they are valid. If there's a widespread inconsistency and variability or poor practice, that would certainly undermine public confidence in mm-hmm. neurological criteria. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would definitely agree with that. And that's an area of huge concern. Um, anytime uh, there's a sense that either the medical uh, team or the organ transplantation team or transplantation organizations might be you know, cutting corners one way or the other, that's going to undermine trust in, in the system. But as a as a whole, I would say that just because there's variability in practice, that doesn't undermine the validity of the criteria themselves. Right. So in Chapter 4, you offered a number of, of case reports. In fact, I think that's the name of the chapter is case reports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you offer a number of these case reports demonstrating error in the determination of brain death. Now, can you offer some examples and comment on the significance or non-significance of this error in terms of determining brain death? Yeah, certainly error is obviously a huge cause for concern. And there are errors that do occur. And, and typically, they, if they make their way into the news, you know, a lot of people hear about it. And obviously, there's, it's an alarming situation. From news reports, it's hard to ascertain exactly what went on behind the scenes in the clinical setting. But there are, and as, I, as you mentioned, I describe a number of cases, some high profile, some less well known in in this chapter. But um, there are a couple errors that seem to be fairly common. One is a failure to um, a failure to account for some sort of underlying condition or a confounding factor. And a good example of that would be drug in- intoxication. So a, a patient presents and they're intoxicated somehow with some substance and the uh, clinical team doesn't do an adequate job of, you know, recognizing it, screening for it, waiting for uh, the drug to clear, something like that. And frequently, then a diagnosis of brain death is 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 made. They proceed with the evaluation and the clinical examination. They determine brain death, and then 
maybe the drug uh, clears and the, the patient wakes up, sometimes even on the way to maybe uh, organ transplantation procedure. So this is obviously yeah, you gave us, yeah. yeah, you gave an example of that in the book. I was, I was just like, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly, fairly dramatic, you know. <laughs> especially <laughs> for the patient, yeah. Yes, yeah. And so there's really a lot of cause for concern, especially if, if uh, some sort of toxic substances are, are involved or in, this, in the patient's system. Extreme caution is, is in order. Some are recommending not even proceed with a clinical examination under the circumstances at all. And that's, Joe, as we talk about maybe the opioid epidemic or fentanyl being on the rise here in the U.S., uh, this has, you know, contributed to uh, our our need to be on guard against against proceeding with a, a clinical examination when it's not warranted. Right, and it's interesting because the you know the opioid epidemic has actually brought about an increased number of organ donors. Right, and, and so you, you've got you know we we see that right. the numbers have increased, but at the same time we have to make sure that. You know, as you said, the you know the 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 drugs are not actually um, you know masking something deeper. That's exactly, not, that's not there. Yeah. Another so, example might be um, this one made a lot of waves, and I included it in the, in this chapter. The, the issue of uh, therapeutic hypothermia. Yes, that's, this was really interesting too. Yeah, yeah. So for listeners, perhaps this is a procedure where a patient who, for example, has a heart attack, uh, they will induce hypothermia into a patient under certain circumstances to, uh, as a means of, to aid recovery. But then the patient then needs to be thoroughly warmed over a period of time. And if, well, if the clinician, if the clinical team then proceeds to try to do a, uh, brain death examination at that stage, that can obviously lead to, to problems. In fact, uh, that did lead to, that happened one time and the researchers wrote it up and say, well, this is an example of uh, reversible brain death because they had determined <laughs> brain death, a person met the criteria when they did the examination, but they failed to account for the fact that he, the hypothermia had been induced. Right. So this was a huge, right. at least in the scientific literature, it was a big, it was a big deal. But um, we really need, so those are, those are examples of error that, um, that clinicians need to be on, on guard for. So same question that I asked as a, a follow-up in the, in the previous one. Do these examples of error undermine the neurological criteria for determining death? Yeah, and again, my answer would be, would be no. Errors are lamentable and regrettable and sometimes horrific, but they don't necessarily undermine or they do not undermine the validity of the criteria themselves. The, 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 the issue is making sure that we do this as thoroughly and as rigorously as possible. Right. And I think you mentioned in the book on more than one occasion that there has never been a case where if the American Academy of Neurology criteria is well followed, you know, yes. is rigorously followed, that's the yes. word I was looking for, there has never been a case where a patient has woken up. So exactly. That is still the case as far as my, as my understanding goes. And if, for example, we mentioned that patient who had uh, therapeutic hypothermia, mm-hmm. if that patient didn't have that hypothermia induced and went through a clinical examination, if everything was the same, uh, and then they determined brain death. And then after that, the patient recovered, then that would be a, that would be a serious crisis. It would undermine the, the, the criteria themselves. But since it wasn't, the criteria wasn't properly applied, it, uh, errors like this do not 
undermine the criteria themselves. Okay. All right. So let's let's change gears a little bit and, okay. and talk about this DCDD. So yes. your book takes a, a rather negative view of DCDD or donation after circulatory determination of death. All right. So first of all, can you describe what DCDD is and then explain what the ethical or other challenges are with it? Yes. First of all, uh, what is it? One, it's a, it's it's another uh, means of determining death, specifically in the context of organ do- donation. And so, this w- involves patients who are not brain dead, clearly not brain dead. They may have severe, often do have severe uh, brain injury, and um, the it is determined that further treatment is not going to be helpful. It's not going to be proportionate. And so the family, the person, the patient, or the family decides: okay, this is a this is the situation. We are going to withdraw treatment so that the patient can have a natural death, which is foreseen. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, those cases, since death is anticipated shortly after uh, support will be re, uh, removed, that they might coordinate with the organ transplantation team. This is supposed to be done separately, obviously. The uh, decision to be made independently to withdraw care. And then once that decision is made, does the person want to become an organ donor? If the person consents to organ donation, then a coordination is set up with a separate transplantation team. And unlike brain death, when a patient is being maintained on a ventilator, the transplantation can occur with a little more... um, time. But with this protocol, which is based on withdrawing the patient from uh, life support and then waiting for death to occur, and death will be determined in this case by, um, it's called the circulatory criteria. So you wait for obviously the cessation of the um, heartbeat and breathing, and then a certain amount of time after that to uh, for the cir- circulation to cease. And this is a challenging procedure because time is of the essence. Once a patient is dead or their heartbeat stops, right. uh, the further along you wait, the less viable the organs become. And the team needs to move rapidly to extract the organs. Uh, but if you wait too long, you're not going to be able to access the organs. But if you don't wait long enough, the patient may not be dead. Right. And that is one of the huge issues in, involved in these protocols. There are other issues, for example, do we administer uh, particular agents into the patient, not for the patient's benefit, but to, for the benefit of the recipient uh, of, the, of, the do- of the organ donation. But I mainly focused in, the, in these chapters on the actual determination of death in this in this context, and that is a big challenge. Uh, it's it's actually a big concern and controversy because current protocols say once heartbeat stops or circulation stops, we need to wait two minutes or maybe five minutes. Between two to five minutes is what a lot of institutions or uh, body uh, medical bodies recommend. Um, typically, they say uh, not less than two minutes, not more than five minutes. There's other protocols which have occurred under two minutes. 
which uh, make a lot of people very uncomfortable. Right. Anyway, these, this procedure in general makes, as you were alluding, a lot of practitioners very uncomfortable. And the reason for that, Joe, basically in a nutshell, is that the medical authorities themselves say that at two minutes following cessation of heartbeat or five minutes afterwards, we cannot be confident or certain that the patient has died. Mm -hmm. And ironically, or not ironically, the reason for that is because a patient could be resuscitated um, and a a patient's uh, brain function has not stopped at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So it all kind of comes full circle. So a lot of people argue, well, it would be unethical to revive a patient at five minutes after you know heartbeat stops. Well, that's true. It would be unethical under those circumstances because the patient has, you know, validly, ethically decided to withdraw treatment and allow death to occur. So no one's saying that we should attempt to resuscitate a person, but what is known, widely known in the scientific medical community is that at that point in time, it's possible for such a patient to be revived. And if that's possible, uh, that means that we can't be certain that the patient is dead at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. Like might be a good thing. Like if we could kind of look backtrack a little bit and kind of walk through the process again, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. So we have a patient who is very ill. We're, you know, we're, we're talking someone who, um, you know, as you said, they, they're on life support and there is, there's not, uh, any real hope that, uh, further treatment, further curative treatment is going to have any effect. Correct. And so the family is first or the patient, uh, if, if, if it's in their living will, but the family is, is approached and, and a decision is made to withdraw care. So that's decision one that has to be made. Correct. A completely separate decision then is, okay, can this patient become an organ donor? And if the family consents to that, the process is the patient is um, removed from life support. And then um, within a certain amount of time, I believe, I've, I've heard different numbers. Uh, maybe you've heard different than I have. I've, I've heard within 60 minutes. So they remove life support. And within 60 minutes, the patient goes into cardiac arrest. Their, their heart stops beating. Correct. From that point, the, and, and this is where the question, the, the ethical question that you brought up comes in. So once the heart has stopped beating, now we have to wait a certain amount of time to make sure that the heart doesn't, you know, to restart automatically or restart on its own. And the debate is over this length of time that we wait is it, should it be two minutes? Should it be five minutes? I know in the book you mentioned there are some countries that have a 20-minute wait. Right. And then after that, that waiting period is over, then the, the organ harvesting procedure can begin. Right. So it's really this time period um, between when the heart stops beating and when we can begin the, the process of organ recovery, correct? That's correct. That's a good summary. And there's and incidentally, and the, some people, as you're saying, if they don't go into cardiac arrest within, as you said, typically uh, within a one hour of uh, removal of treatment, then they would not be eligible to be a donor. Right. Yeah, right. They're not a donor anymore. So the issue really is, is that there's that there's no consensus on the duration of cardiac cardiac arrest that's necessary in order to determine that it's irreversible. Correct? Right. That is correct. That is correct. There's no consensus, but but there is a consensus. I would say uh, that 
the patients at this point in time are not dead. They cannot say that with confidence. With 100% certainty. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I can remember we, uh, what the medical authorities themselves are, are saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of personal things on this. this. This is a fascinating topic, and it's been a fascinating topic for me for a while. But um, I, I can remember, again, when I was working for a healthcare system, um, the hospital had a DCD or DCDD donation. It was the first one in the system. And the um, people from you know the, the, the care team and also members from the transplant team came back to the hospital about a week or two later. They, it was a kind of a grand rounds, a Schwartz rounds, um, some people call it that. You know, it's kind of it's sort of a debriefing of it. And afterwards, I remember talking to one of the nurses from the transplant team, not the care team, but the transplant mm-hmm. team. I, I believe his name was Adam. Mm-hmm. And I said, Adam, I got a question for you. I said, you know, you've, you've done a lot of these organ transplant procedures. He said, yeah. I said, is a whole brain death transplant, or actually, I asked it the other way. I said, is a, is a DCDD transplant different from a whole brain transplant? And he just looked at me in the eye and he said, yes, absolutely. It's yeah. a different, it's a different thing. So even, even at least that person recognized that there's something, you know, there, there's something here that's different than the whole brain death criteria. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's been my experience as well. It's been rather limited in terms of, you know, speaking with practitioners about this, but that's been my, my impression as well. And, and it's also interesting to see that the, the rationale that is given by the medical authority or people who approve of this practice in brain death, they say, well, we are certain that the patient is dead because their 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 brain function has been lost irreversibly. Mm-hmm. With with respect to this uh, circulatory criteria or cardiac death, organ transplantation protocols, they say, well, it would be unethical to try to revive the patient at this time, or in other circumstances, i.e., when the patient is not an organ, a similar patient is not. An organ donor, we would declare the person dead at this time, and that's quote current medical practice. Well, that's mm-hmm. true, but it doesn't mean that the patient at that time is actually dead, and so they they use a different rationale to justify the DCDD protocols, uh, and so I think that's something that we need to be attentive to. Yeah, and now I do have to you know give the other side of the coin here too because sure. um, the. We, the NCBC, we have our certification program and we have our two-day seminars. And I can remember um, I was doing the brain death and organ donation presentation at one of our two-day seminars. It was in New York City a couple of years ago. And it ended up being probably the most, um, oh, shall we say, controversial presentation of the day because it, really wow. it really got people excited. And, of course, this was, this was at the end of two days, you know, where right, people exactly. are, are already, quote-unquote, brain dead. Huh? You know, yeah. <laughs> It was really interesting because there were people who uh, I, I can remember one woman um, in particular. She was she was fine with the the DCDD the the circulatory determination of death, and she had a lot of disagreements with the neurological criteria. And so mm-hmm. it was it was it was the exact opposite. And it's really interesting to hear 
um, different people's perspectives on on you know which criteria, if any, that they will hold in terms of determining death, most often for the purpose of organ or tissue donation. So no, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's there's people are coming at this from different perspectives or different uh, you know knowledge bases and. What you just said triggered another uh, thought for uh, an item in the book that this going back to brain death. Apparently, I think there was one study, I think it was Journal of Medical Ethics, that said something like 70%. I I shouldn't say it right now because I can't say exactly with confidence, but it's going off memory. It was a high percentage of people said that they would be fine with a person in a persistent vegetative state uh, becoming an organ donor, even though. Even when they were, even when it was explained to them that a person in that vegetative state was not brain dead, and that the act of organ donation would, in fact, kill the patient, and still a high percentage of people said, "Well, in that case, I would approve of that type of procedure." Yeah, I remember so, yeah, reading that. <laughs> yeah, people come at this thing from a different vantage point, and also the other thought: people do tend to think they're they're more comfortable with. Uh, cardiac death or circulatory determination of death because it kind of corresponds with our traditional understanding of sure. death going back over time a person's yeah. heartbeat stops and they stop breathing well they're dead if they're not dead right now they're going to be dead really soon so whereas brain death seems oh my gosh the person still has a beating heart because of the technical intervention it's it's hard to wrap your mind around it but as we've discussed earlier i hold a view that's uh that brain death is neurocentric, that without the destruction of the brain, uh, you're, you cannot be confident that death has occurred. All right. So just following up on that, then, in your opinion, does DCDD violate the dead donor rule? Wow. Well, in short, I would say, yes, it, it does. Uh, really? I, Interesting. I, I, yeah. I might not say that categorically in the sense that, in the sense that there may be a, a, a certain, a patient who truly has died two minutes after uh, the cessation of the heartbeat. But we, we just can't know that. Uh, we can know that it is possible for patients to be to be revived much, much longer than even five minutes, maybe past 10. Or it, the, the numbers are, I, I discuss uh, that in detail in the book, but it's it's possible that a person could be revived, which means that they have... Uh, they, their brain has not been completely destroyed uh, in such a short period of time. And therefore, if we need to be consistent with, say, the, the rationale for accepting the uh, brain death or the death by the neurological criteria, uh, we need to apply that into the DCD type situation as well. Hmm. Do you think the DCDD protocols could be revised so that they could, one, assure that a patient is actually dead before vital organs are removed? and and two, be in accord with Catholic teaching. Well, um, yes, I think they could be revised. It might be a little more technically challenging to, but but I think that they could be uh, uh, revised. I even I even discussed one proposal for doing so uh, that uh, was uh, offered by I think it was a scholar at UCLA, if I'm not mistaken, um, in the book, and it would, would require number one a, wait, a longer waiting time. Um, so that we can have moral certainty that the patient has died. You know, that's that's the issue. Same that's with brain case. death. Right. Yeah. Yes. With brain death, we say, what do we do? We listen to the medical authorities. We, we say their view of death, does it co- correspond with a with the, the Christian view of the human person, body and soul? And then number three, 
I may have forgot to mention this earlier. What's what's the other issue? The issue is we need moral certainty, not absolute certainty of death. And in the in the case of these circulatory criteria, it's not clear that we have uh, with, with sufficient certainty to say that a patient is dead after after five minutes of cessation of heartbeat. So I would say that 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 we do not have the moral certainty that a patient is dead at that at that time. I would say, does this violate the dead donor rule? I, I gave an answer to that earlier. One other caveat I would say is, well, these these protocols, they don't actively kill the person. That's important distinction. But the dead donor rule, I think it means both. One, you cannot actively kill a patient, but it also means that the, the patient actually has to be dead. Otherwise, this could lead to other problems down the line because if, the, if we take away the requirement that the patient has to be dead before their organs can be uh, donated, then why couldn't you do the similar procedure just before the patient dies? Why couldn't you start this process? For instance, the patient says, I'm going to go off life support. I know I'm going to face a heart attack and, or I'll probably face a heart attack and, and die. Why can't I just immediately start the, um, the organ transplantation procedure uh, at that point in time? Um, and there have been proposals to, you know, do similar things. Uh, I, I mentioned this uh, proposal from Brown University several years ago. I think it was proposing that two kidneys could be taken out before death. And it was foreseen that this would obviously lead to, you know, you know anyhow, you get where I'm going with this. this uh, I, oh, yeah. Yeah. More it's, simply it's, slow. I mean, it, yeah, it's, yeah. 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 Uh, the brave new world that we are in. Uh, Matt, Matt Hanley, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Well, I think, I don't know if I have so many words of wisdom necessarily, but uh, one, one follow-up to the previous question, he says, uh, can these proposals be revised? And I, I thought that they could be revised um, in a way that would be technically challenging, but possible to, to do and also be more, uh, also achieve moral certainty that the patients died. And you asked, how would this correspond to Catholic teaching? And I think this is a really interesting point because we started the discussion, or in the previous part of the discussion, we did this, we did uh, relate that the church has investigated brain death and spoken about it affirmatively, meaning they have said this is a valid means of determining death. Mm-hmm. I think a critical issue going forward is what does the church say about these DCDD protocols, these protocols for donation after circulatory arrest? So no one's saying that uh, in a normal circumstances, a, a patient would be, a, a, a patient would be, a, a dying patient would soon be dead. But at, with these protocols, that, that time frame is, is truncated and, I don't know of any formal guidance from the church on that. In the book, I talk about certain principles of, of organ donation and uh, specifically when can a patient, a living patient, become an organ donor. And that's evolved over time, which I think is another right. fascinating yeah. aspect. But to my knowledge, the church has not addressed this particular issue. And I think that that would be a, a valuable, needed a contribution going forward. I don't disagree with you. Matt Hanley, thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Joe. Nice to be with you. Thanks again. 
For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. Once again, the book we have been discussing today, Determining Death by Neurological Criteria, Current Practice and Ethics, is available through the NCBC online store at ncbcenter.org store. For archived editions of our podcast, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Thank you for listening today, and may the Lord's peace be with you.